Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor. We have Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and also Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent. Down the line from Clifford Chance, we also have our guest, Simon Gleason. Firstly, we'll be looking at US bank results, what JP Morgan's results on Monday say about the quarterly results across Wall Street. Secondly, a look at GE Capital, the financial division of GE, which is being all but shrunk to nothing. And finally, another look at HSBC as the fallout from that Swiss private banking scandal continues. First, though, to JP Morgan. Laurie, you've been looking at uh, their quarterly results, which I think have beaten expectations for the first time in a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time we saw JP Morgan beat expectations in seven quarters. So they're obviously very pleased with that. JP Morgan is always an interesting one to watch because they're the first of the large global investment banks or the large global banks at all to report earnings. So people always look to those to see how the earnings quarter is likely to shape up both for the other US banks and then also for the European banks. So what allowed JP to beat expectations? Well, the corporate and the investment bank was really the big earner this time round. Profits in that side of the business rose 19% in the quarter. Across the consumer bank, profits were only up 12%. So really, the investment bank was the outperformer. Within that, um, equities trading had a very good run. That had an 8.2% increase in trading revenue. M&A revenues were also really strong. They were up by 42% in the quarter. So those were two really, really strong areas. Then fixed income trading also had a pretty good time of it. Fixed income was up on the quarter. And fixed income is something which has been fairly troubled in recent times. So they will have been pleased to have seen fixed income up. Now, the one thing to point out is that we did have a lot of volatility in the first quarter, and it isn't clear that we're going to have that level of volatility maintaining into the other quarters. So even when they were talking today, they did say that they expect trading revenue to remain strong, but that they don't expect the second quarter to be quite as strong as the first quarter because there were some exceptional factors. Within Europe, we had the Swiss National Bank very unexpectedly removing their currency peg to the euro in January. That drove an awful lot of volatility in that month in particular. We're not expecting another event of that kind. So we should see trading revenues remaining high, but probably not as high as they were in what was an exceptional first quarter for them. Okay. Martin, the read across from JP, as Laura was saying, they're often a bellwether for others, given that they report first and um, generally have a fairly broadly spread universal bank. What do you think we're going to see? Well, I think even before JP Morgan confirmed it today that investment banks, in particular the trading businesses, had a good first quarter after a difficult 2014 fixed income trading businesses, foreign exchange trading and commodity trading was up because of all this volatility. That's pretty much taken as red. I think what will be interesting is when JP Morgan has its conference call and talks to analysts and the press, what they say about the uh, second quarter so far. 
And also, I think it's interesting to note that Wells Fargo reported results today, and they didn't do as well. The first quarter profits were down slightly. And so even though mortgage originations, which is their main business, a heavily US-focused retail bank mainly, were up, they still struggled to maintain profit and momentum. Didn't have that tailwind of the investment bank trading. Well, banks. I think they're being squeezed, as all banks are, by um, low interest rate environment, which is squeezing the net interest margin, which is the difference between the interest they earn from lending money and the interest that uh, they pay out on deposits. So, you know, retail banks getting squeezed, investment banks probably doing better in the first quarter. But there's also, as JP Morgan showed, still a cost of legacy issues and litigation and conduct around. JP Morgan put aside almost half a billion dollars for that. Now, that's not the the scale of 2013 when they put aside almost $20 billion for litigation issues. But still, it shows that the banks are still trying to clear up these litigation and legacy issues, and they're very costly. So I think other banks will see that continuing to take its toll as well. I'm sure if other banks can reduce that litigation reserving, as JP Morgan has done, then it might buoy sentiment across the banking sector. We'll see. Thank you for that. Let's move on to our second topic. Well, I'm joined now on the line by Simon Gleeson, who is a partner at Clifford Chance and a specialist in regulatory affairs. We're here to talk about GE Capital and the decision by GE to withdraw from or largely withdraw from its financial services business, wind down the bulk of its GE Capital operations. Interesting that GE's boss, Jeff Immelt, was highlighting that one of the key reasons for this is that it has been designated a systemically important institution and Part of the burden that comes with that, a capital charge, has made it less economic than its core industrials business, he pointed out. The falling profitability in terms of return on equity, 8%, potentially falling to 6 or 7 in the finance business compared to about 13% in the industrials business. Of course, those kind of numbers, even within the finance business, sound probably quite attractive to many banks. 8% is an ROE that many banks can only dream of. But Simon, would you say that there are lessons for non-banking groups like GE that might in future be designated as systemically important or have systemically important operations? I'm thinking perhaps of the asset management industry and so on. Are there lessons to be drawn for them from this whole escapade? Well, I think one of the important things here is that the reason that non-bank groups will have regulated bank subsidiaries, and there are an awful lot of commercial and corporate groups with bank subsidiaries out there, traditionally the reason for that was that a bank was a source of cheap money. Now, Interestingly, in this environment, that does seem to be no longer true. So to some extent, almost regardless of whether you're at risk of being designated as a SIFI or not, what is being called into question here is the fundamental logic of corporate groups owning finance groups as a means of access to the financial markets in the first place. Certainly, the issue about SIFI designation is that it involves intense supervision by supervisors whose focus is very different from the activities of the group concerned. If you are, you know, an asset manager or something like that, the most important thing about being designated as a SIFI is that you are now going to have a new regulator who will look at you very differently 
from the way that your existing regulator looks at you. And just sort of the cultural consequences of accommodating something like that within the management of a large business are potentially extremely uncomfortable. Now, I should have said, Simon, you can't talk directly about GE because of client confidentiality, but that broader point is an important one. And I just wanted, in, in terms of another broad point, presumably the very reason a SIFI designation comes about is because of the scale of an operation like this. GE Finance was, even after it shrunk a little bit in recent years, that GE Capital Business had about 500 billion of assets on its balance sheet. Is there a kind of anti-growth message here for some of the asset managers and other non-banks? Well, I do think that um, the way that GE management presented this was as a return on equity story. Now, many banks will tell you that the cumulative impact of bank regulation, the way it's done at the moment, is to require banks to be badly overcapitalized. And in one respect, you could take this as a demonstration of the truth of that proposition. So what is really harmed by this is overall return on equity. And in this environment, anything that threatens overall return on equity is fairly scary because in the financial world, new equity is not easy to come by at the best of times. And if you're in an environment where you're trying to raise new equity in a situation where equity investors are not satisfied that you're going to generate a decent commercial return on it, then that is simply not a sustainable long-term commercial position to be in. So you can entirely see why those who are threatened with being caught in this net would very much like to get out of it. Now, interestingly, if you put that point to the regulators, what they would be inclined to say is, but these institutions threaten the stability of the financial system. Therefore, what we're doing is effectively requiring them to pay an insurance premium in the form of return on equity foregone in order to get the public benefit of making the world safer for everyone else. And there may well be something in that, but it's perfectly reasonable for an organization looking at that proposition to say, well, in that case, I shall reconfigure myself so that I can't be argued to pose a threat to the rest of the world, because then hopefully they will let me off paying the insurance premium. That is entirely rational. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's arguably the regulated responding to deliberate incentives put there in the regulatory system. And if you like doing exactly what they were supposed to do in response to those incentives. And I suppose longer term, that's one of the hopes for the operators that are left in the market of boosting their ROE, because that competition disappears, then they may be able to charge more for their services. That is right. But again, the consequence of that is that either the cost of capital to the economy as a whole goes up, or the total supply of capital to the economy as a whole goes down. One or other of those is bound to happen. Yes, that's not a particularly uh, optimistic (laughs) scenario to look forward to. There's one domestic angle on the GE story, domestic to the UK, which, Emma, you've been looking at. Now, this is the GE money business here in the UK. 
Yes, so as part of the global retrenchment plans, they've confirmed that they're going to be put out of the UK market under their GE Money brand. And as part of this, they have a home lending platform, which is their mortgage origination unit, essentially, which as of the end of the first quarter of this year had about 7.7 billion of home loans. So they confirmed earlier this week that they will be selling that, although admittedly, they've kind of been disposing of parts of it quietly over the past couple of months. So, for example, they offloaded a 250 million chunk of second charge mortgages to a challenger bank about a month ago. So they've now confirmed that they'll be selling this. And so far, there's been quite a bit of interest expressed by challenger banks as well as private equity funds who are keen to get in and snap up some of these assets. Do you think they'll be sold as asset portfolios or will it go as one whole group? They've yet to confirm how this will be sold and there's some speculation that it could be carved up because 7.7 billion is quite a large chunk. While it's palatable for a private equity firm, it's perhaps arguably less so for a smaller challenger bank, which ironically has the problem of scale, which is why they need to buy the assets in the first place. But GE money coming to market right now happens to be at the same time as UK Asset Resolution, which houses the assets of Bradford and Bingley and Northern Rock Asset Management, is also looking to start the process of selling off about 13 billion of mortgage assets assets. So there's suddenly a flood of assets coming to market. UCAR is the government agency, basically, that's winding down those old mortgage lenders. That's correct. And so uh, when they inherited the assets, they were arguably quite distressed. But now a lot of analysts are suggesting that the um, portfolio they're looking to sell is actually pretty good value. Um, Arrears have been cleaned up. A lot of the distressed stuff has already been sold off or sorted out. So actually, it's looking like quite an attractive book right now. And as we saw in September last year, under Project Slate, a 2.7 billion chunk was sold off at a premium to JP Morgan and, and private equity firm Carval. So I think UK are under their mandate to sell off and get the best result for taxpayers, uh, hoping to get another premium on this next 13 billion chunk. It'll be a challenge to do that before the general election, but either way, I suspect it'll be a political boost for the government as and when that does happen. Thank you, Emma, for that. Final topic for the day, HSBC. A couple of reasons why they're back in the news, Martin, both vaguely connected to the Swiss private banking scandal. The first one is the case of Arlette Ritchie, who has been ordered to pay a one million euro fine to spend three years in jail and had two properties confiscated, one in Paris and one in Corsica, all for tax evasion. And this links back to HSBC because she was a client of HSBC's Swiss private banking arm and she was convicted of hiding this money from French tax authorities that she inherited from her grandmother, Nina Ritchie, who was the woman behind the fashion house and hiding it in Panamanian offshore companies through Swiss secret bank accounts. She's the first customer of that bank to come into the court system on this basis, isn't she? Her name was on that list of leaked clients of HSBC Switzerland, which made such a hoo-ha a couple of months ago when yeah. all the details were leaked to the press. So do you expect others to follow? Yes, I think there will be more because whilst this list of clients of HSBC's Swiss private bank has been in the public domain for only a few weeks since it was published by 60 news organisations around the world, um, it's been in the hands of the French tax authorities since 2008 and they've shared it subsequently with other tax authorities including the UK ones and Argentinians who have all taken action to try and recover some of the money that was lost in unpaid tax bills. And presumably in the most flagrant cases, like the case of Ms. Ritchie, more of these cases will end up in court. Just a quick word on the other reason why HSBC is back in the public eye, slightly more tangentially linked, I suspect, to this affair. 
But Douglas Flint, the chairman, more speculation about his future at the bank. There is uh, reports that the bank has engaged headhunters to look for new non-executive directors. And uh, the reports uh, that's out today suggest that one of those new non-executive directors will go on to replace Douglas Flint as chairman of HSBC in the next couple of years, so by 2017. The bank is not saying anything on the record about this, but people familiar with the bank are pushing back against this idea that they've accelerated the succession planning or that they're accelerating plans to replace Douglas Flint as chairman. Okay, thank you very much for that. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Emma here in the studio and also Simon Gleeson from Clifford Chance. Also, thank you for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.